God, it's true. We stand here unashamed before you, Lord. Uh, even in the midst of our shame and guilt, Lord, we stand and are able to stand before you because you have assured us, you've promised us, you've made it known to us in history and by the power of your spirit that the Lord Jesus has removed all of our shame and guilt. And that because of that, deep and abiding love that you have for us uh, that we cannot tarnish or ruin or discard. That you've called us to love you by being obedient to you and in that obedience it itself turns out to be another avenue of your grace and love to us as you free us uh, from the confines of sin and death, Lord. And we thank you for these astonishing truths you tell us, Lord, you're teaching us about what you are really like. And our image of that, our ideas of what you are really like, Lord, can be so distorted. So I pray, Lord, as we study your word today, that you would make that really clear to us. That you are God who loves us. That you are God who has cleansed us through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that through that cleansing you are creating in us new hearts and creating us to be fountains of life into the world. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that, help us to see the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for us uh, and the possibilities of being in your family, Lord. Help us to be a blessing to the world. And we pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our minds, Lord. Without your spirit, we can do nothing today. So we pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds to your truth that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. And in and through that, you promise us that you will beautify your afflicted ones. So we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So we're going gonna to do a, a, a mini-series. Um, most of you know, hopefully you all know, on February 9th, it's a big day in the life of our church. We are going to be voting, or we're, we're going to become, we've already done the voting, we're going to become uh, an independent church. We are going to become, for up till this point, uh, up till uh, this point in time, we've been a mission church. We've been overseen by another church body. Uh, our leaders, our leader, or the leaders and the elders of our church have been from another church. Our, our, finan our financial support has been from outside, most of it, a lot of it. And now we've gotten to the point where we are going to become our own independent church, and we're going to install our own leaders, our own elders that will be overseeing us. And as part of that, as part of that, um, that service that we're going to do on the 9th, part of that service is we will renew our membership, our covenant vows to one another. As Herb and I are ordained uh, as to be elders in the church, we're going to reaffirm our covenant vows to sacrificially lay down our lives to serve the congregation. And that the congregation, we're going to renew our vows um, to love and to honor Christ um, all and to, to serve one another, everything that we say in our membership vows. And so I thought it would be really great leading up to that, becoming a church where we covenant to walk together in faithfulness before the Lord. If we did like a mini topical series that kind of focused on uh, the last three questions of our membership vows, which are the part where it really talks about what our obligations and rights and responsibilities and what the blessing is of being covenant members of the church. What's behind all that, what it means and what those vows are actually saying. 
And hopefully in that to uncover, like, what a crazy blessing it is from God in, in those vows that we make. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to, over the next four weeks, we have four weeks to do this, going over, uh, looking at those vows in different ways. And then on the fifth week will be our particularization service. So today we're going to look at question number seven, which says this. It says, in gratitude for God's grace and reliance upon God's Holy Spirit, will you try to please and honor your Lord and Savior by loving and serving him and other people as he instructs us in the Bible? So the big questions we're going to try to answer is, what does it even mean to love and serve God? What does it mean to serve others? Uh, What does it mean to do that by relying on the Holy Spirit? That's the big answer we're going to try and get, and I chose as a control passage Uh, John 14, verses 15 through 24. So let's listen intently to God's inerrant word. This is Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. And this is what he says. (laughs) He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, For he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How are we going to see you, but the world won't? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, big idea in the passage, it's calling us to love and serve Jesus, right? And, and, and that can be tricky. That's a hard thing to do. It can be a difficult thing to do when we live in an age where the definition of love is a moving target. Uh, what does love mean? What does it even mean to love Jesus? Let me uh, listen to this story. This is an opening story from a book called What is Marriage? It's by Princeton Law Professor Robert P. George. Um, and he, he writes this, and he writes this uh, as a way to express kind of the shifting nature of what, it mean, what love means in the world. Uh, And here's the story. This is how he opens his book. In the fall of 2006, John Partia, an Upper West Side advertising executive, meets Carol Ann Riddle, a local news anchor, like-minded and both brimming with energy. They hit it off, and within five years, they're exchanging vows. But when the New York Times covers their wedding, it sparks a blaze of controversy. Why? Because Partia and Riddle were already married when they met at their children's pre-kindergarten. In fact, their families became friends. But rather than deny their feelings and live dishonestly, they decided to abandon their spouses and children. And as the Times puts it, all they had were their feelings, 
which Mrs. Riddle described as unconditional and all-encompassing. It was a gift, but I had to earn it. Were we brave enough to hold hands and jump? Now, there's lots of reasons why marriages break in the world, lots of sad reasons why marriages break. Sometimes things just get so broken, they can't be put back together. That's not really what this is talking about. This is talking about something different. We read the story. And why George opens this book, or his book with this story, is because this is a shocking example of love gone wrong, of the shifting ideal of love that has changed to be basically about emotional intensity, the way you make me feel, what I can get from you by, by you becoming a source of emotional intensity and good feelings uh, and, and excitement. It's really a, an example of how we've taken love and turned it into totally all about feelings and really totally all about us. It's about what we can get, what I can get from you, self-serving, selfish, uh, controlling, uh, not sacrificial type of love. So why am I telling you this story as we talk about knowing how to love Jesus? Well, the reason is because uh, this passage that we just read and question seven of our membership vows calls us to love and to serve Jesus. And this cultural shift in the meaning of love affects and colors our understanding of love. So what is it even in our age, when, when that's the cultural definition of love, it can, it can confuse us. What does it even mean to love Jesus? Does it mean that we're supposed to have warm and fuzzy feelings about him? Am I supposed to have an emotional intensity that comes with worship? Is that really loving God? And if so, what happens? How do I do that Monday morning when my boss shows up and starts yelling at me? Well, is that what it means for God to love us? Does that mean that God has really warm, fuzzy feelings about us, but not much? Uh, we know, and we talk about this a lot in human terms, in a horizontal sphere, a biblical understanding of love means that you self-sacrificially give of yourself out of, uh, for the benefit of the other person because you value and recognize their worth. But is that what we do to God? Are we self-sacrificing for God's benefit? How do, we, how do we give anything to God? We can't give anything to God. So what does this even mean? What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love God by serving Him and serving other people? Uh, and that's what we're going to look at today, the what. What does it mean? Two, how do we do it? And three, why we should do it. So here's the big idea, the what, the how, and the why. The big idea is that the gospel calls us to love and service in the power of the Spirit for the glory of God and the health of the church. That's the three big ideas we're going to look at. So let's look at that first one. Uh, the gospel calls us to love and service. Now Jesus starts this, starts that passage out and, inter, and weaves through it uh, some, some crazy things, some things that might cause us to, be, to stand back a little bit. Uh, he says in verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That sounds kind of scary when you read it by itself. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now that can sound, that can sound kind of scary, especially to us who are really focused on preaching the gospel and, and, and uh, understanding God's love for us. And it can be really confusing also if our definition of love and is colored by the cultural definition of love of feelings, emotional intensity, 
emotional high. And all of us suffer from that, whether you admit it or not. So what is he talking about? And, and what helps us here is, big thing that helps us is the context. Whenever we look at the Bible, we need to understand what the context is. And we do this, we, do, we, we need context to define love even in our own day and age, right? I might say, I love my wife. I could say, I love my new truck. I could say, I love that little puppy dog in the window. And I hope that you're, I'm talking about different things. If I love my wife the way I love my new truck, I'm going to be in marriage counseling. Quick. Uh, so there's, there, there's different context. It means a different thing, right? And in this context, this is Jesus, King Jesus, and he is initiating covenant with his disciples. Now, we think we're so influenced by Eastern mysticism and Eastern thought, we typically think of Jesus as the guru uh, and that we're supposed to have fond feelings of affection for him and regard and to uh, meditate on his teachings. And, uh, but in this context, what the New Testament teaches is Jesus is not coming as the guru. He is coming as the high king, and he is making a covenant with his people. And if you were an ancient Near Eastern Hebrew in the first century, you would understand what covenants between high kings and their people were all about. They were pervasive. They were, they were like the, the, the treaty. They were the, the, the diplomatic documents of the day. Everyone was familiar with what covenants were. And in covenants, there was the high king, who in these covenants was also often called father, and his responsibility was to provide protection and provision for the people salvation. And the people's responsibility and the, the lower, the lesser king, the, the ruler of that people and the people themselves, their responsibility was to maintain faithful obedience to the covenant, uh, to, to the rules, to the statutes and rules and requirements of the covenant, to be obedient to the statutes of the covenant, right? So all that to say, in this context, Jesus is saying that love equals covenant faithfulness. It's our obedience to Christ that is the way that we express love to God. One of the ways. One of the important ways. But, 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 but the gospel. What does that mean? Uh, I thought we weren't. I thought we weren't held to like. I thought we didn't have to do the law. Or I thought, thought it was just God's love for us. What does this? What does that mean? How this could be part of the covenant that we're supposed to love? we love God. Well, first, this first thing it's important to understand what it says. It says it does not say, "I will love the one if he obeys my commandments." That's not what it says. It says, "He who loves me will obey my commandments." It's speaking about something true of the one who really loves Jesus. It's a marker of identification, uh, which makes it an encouragement for us. If you say to yourself, wow, I love Jesus and I really want to, I really want to please him, that's a sign of your salvation, not a sign against it. It's speaking something that's true about us, and, it, and, and that love becomes a response, not a requirement. Response, not a requirement. Super important. The second thing Maybe even more important is that obedience is actually God's love for us. How is that even possible? 
I was trying to think about how to explain this. And, and uh, you know, every once in a while I get, uh, I get all motivated and I go on this anti-inflammatory diet, right? Uh, most of the time I really like junk food, man. I love Coca-Cola. All you guys know me know that. I love an ice-cold bottle of Mexican Coke with the dew just dripping down upon it, and you crack that bad Larry open and you sniff the ambrosia as it comes out the top, and it's just, it's like the nectar of the gods, right? And I love, man, I love fast food. I love ham I greasy hamburgers, but everyone's, the problem is that that stuff causes joint pain. <laughs> I get joint pain. It's like unbearable. So I'm popping Tylenol like crack, just trying to like override it, right? Every once in a while, I get to the point where I have to go on this anti-inflammatory diet, right? And so I, I go and I, I listen to wisdom, like what to eat, what not to eat, and it's really difficult, and I start to change my diet, and as I change my diet, then I start to feel a little bit better, and as I start to feel a little bit better, uh, then I want to change my diet a little bit more, and then the stuff that I really thought was that, you know, so good and tasty starts to not look so appealing anymore, and healthy food starts to look more appealing, and then I get stronger, I feel less pain, I feel healthy, I'm able to do more things, and I, you get to that place where you're like, wow, this is awesome, I feel so good. You know, if only it would like never end, right? Because then I, you know, I've done this like five times, right? And you slide back into it real slow, you start, I can have one Big Mac, I can do, you know, and then you slide back into it. Well, look, <laughs> okay, that's kind of like what obedience is, what God is doing for us in obedience. He's saying just like, like a couple, you know, a little while ago we talked, we had a sermon where we really pulled out the meaning of when, when Jesus says, I am true food, my body is true food, my flesh is true drink. It's talking about how the love of Jesus and, 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 and being passionately in love and serving him creates health. Spiritual food creates spiritual health in us just like healthy food creates physical health. So that's really the idea of obedience is it's not us making ourselves pleasing to God at all. That's already happened in Jesus. It's God, like the, the, the spiritual health mentor who comes alongside us and says, change your spiritual diet. Change what you love. Change what you run to. Change what you put into your spirit and into your body. And in, in that, we start to become healthy. We start to become stronger. We start to uh, be able to do more. As Paul says, we become a vessel for honorable use, equipped for good works that God has prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. And we become a fountain of life for the world. The second thing, second thing it means to love God, or second way that this calls us to love God, is it says that we serve God by serving other people. Think about that. I mean, we call this a service, and we're here to like offer our, you know, obedience to God in, in, in a certain way, but for the most part, we can't do anything for God. God, God owns everything. God has everything. God is all-powerful. We can't do anything that benefits or strengthens or adds to God. And so what he calls us to do is to worship him and to love him by worship, by serving other people. 
And in, here's, here's what I like. Here's something that came out of this when I was studying the membership question itself and like looking at the scriptures behind it, is that this particular question, when it says, when it says, please and honor your Lord and Savior by loving and serving him and other people. You know who the other people in that is? It's people outside the church. How do I know that? Because the next question talks about serving people inside the church with the gifts that God has given us. This is talking in a Presbyterian document, mind you, about loving God by serving people in the world, by serving our communities, by serving non-Christians. Loving and serving non-Christians. And I got to tell you, man, I had to, I've sat through some scary lectures where people were so concerned about the purity of the church and making sure that, you know, we didn't get involved in things we shouldn't get involved in. He made arguments that the church should never do anything outside of helping its own members. It has no responsibility whatsoever to the world around us. Uh, And I understand the heart that was behind what they were trying to say. However, membership question says, as he instructs us in the Bible, and if you look at the Bible, man, it talks about Jesus, what Jesus says. The whole point of the Good Samaritan parable is that we are to be good, we are to be good neighbors to the outsider, not the people in the church, but to outside of the church. We are to dedicate we are our lives and we are to be ready and willing to sacrifice ourselves for the good of the outsider. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says we're to love and serve our enemies even. And if we don't, he says, then what makes you any different than anybody else? It's that, that is the thing that makes us different. And then he ends, you know, the whole Sermon on the Mount by, or in Matthew 5 ends Matthew 5 by saying, you're the salt and light of the world. So therefore, do your good deeds before men so that they may glorify God your Father. As people see us loving uh, and serving the world, it brings glory to God. Now, look, why am I, why am I, I wonder, why am I pulling that out specifically and kind of honing in on it? And it's because, just first, briefly, there's seven membership questions that we ask, seven membership vows. One through six are all doctrinal questions about, do you believe that you have sinned against God's law and what you think, say, and do? Yes. Do you believe that you cannot make yourself right with God by trying to act or be good? Yes. It's all like doctrinal questions about salvation and the gospel, which is really important to get right. And we're really good at that. We're really good at getting those right. But then we turn the corner and we get to question seven and it explicitly says that we as a church have an obligation to love and serve people in the world as an act of devotion to Jesus. And we kind of go, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally we do that. Well, how do we do that? How do we do that? It's a, that's a question we need to be asking ourselves. Just individually as people and as our church. But here's, here's, here's what I want to end this section on. This is not talking about just raw obedience. Like if you're familiar with the philosopher Immanuel Kant, he had this the principle of obedience. It was just raw obedience to the moral imperative. 
with no passion, with no love in it whatsoever. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not using that explanation, you know, I'm not using that, that illustration of love gone wrong and the marriage that was purely about emotional intensity to say there's no emotional intensity in it. In those ancient Near Eastern covenants, the intent of them, what they meant to say was that the king would be so gracious and so good and so overwhelmingly protective and supportive of the people that he was over that they, in their hearts, would be so grateful and so passionately uh, uh, be grateful for the love of the king that they would want to, from the bottom of their hearts, obey and love him by serving him. And that's the intent of this, too. It's not just raw obedience, and it's not just intensity of motion. It's those things together. As we understand who God is, as we love him more, we'll be more grateful, and that is what powers us uh, to move, to obey him, and to love and serve other people. So that brings up the big question, okay, how do we do that? How do we do it? How do we engage in this love and service, and that's the second part, which is in the power of the Spirit. What the, the question itself says, in reliance on God's Holy Spirit. Now, there's also a lot of confusion about what the Holy Spirit does, right? I, one of my professors in, call, in, in seminary, uh, he came from a, a certain church tradition that really emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit and the operation of the Holy Spirit in the world. And when he came to seminary, his first thought was like, these people don't even believe in the Holy Spirit <laughs> because he didn't see anything similar. I had one of a, a really good friend of mine uh, who the first time she came to our church, she felt, she felt God tell her in her mind that the Holy Spirit wasn't here and to run. And she ran out of the church because she had very distinct ideas about what the Holy Spirit was and what the Holy Spirit did. And it didn't, it didn't line up with what she was experiencing, right? So, you know, God is all-powerful. He's all power to do anything he wants in the world. And he often does. He often suspends nature. He often works miracles. He, he does heal people. He does miraculous works in the world. That's not, but that's not the norm. That's not the ordinary thing that God does. There's two, the two most important forgotten words in the theology of the Holy Spirit is this, ordinary and extraordinary. There's extraordinary things that God does, and he does them. And those are things that God may do, he may not do, but we can't rely upon him or call him to remember that as a promise to us. And then there are other things that God does that are actually the most remarkable things that God has said, I will do this. And we can call upon God to remember his promise to us in that thing. And the big thing that God does that's more astonishing than anything else, although maybe not to us because it's not as visible, is he brings spiritually dead people to life and then does a remarkable work of internally changing their character. Not their behavior. Internally changing our character. That's a whole different ball game. And then he uses those broken people who are being changed 
to create justice in the world. That's crazy. And he does it every day. So reliance. Let me, listen to this. Let me, let's read John 14, 16. Jesus talks about this, how he does this in the passage that we read. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's going to give us this gift, the promise of the Holy Spirit that will work in and through us. Those were super important words. In, through. That means you don't possess that power. It means it works in and through you. And this is not conjecture. This is not something that might happen. Listen, this is God's promises. Listen, Ezekiel 36, he promises to give us a new heart and it says he will cause us to walk in his statutes. Hebrews 13, 14, we say is a benediction all the time. It says that God is working in us that which is pleasing to his sight. So our question is, how do we please God? How do we how to become pleasing to God? Well, a big part of that answer is God is working in us to make us pleasing to him. And a big control verse, Philippians 13 through 14, it says we are to work out our salvation, not work for our salvation, but to work out the salvation that's been implanted in us already. Why or how? Because God is in us working. God is in us creating us to be willing to be obedient and creating obedience in us. Those are God's promises. God's promises to us. So, hey, look, here's the big question. I bet a lot of you are thinking this right now. I'm thinking it. <laughs> I always think it when I read these promises. I'm like, okay. Okay, so if that's true and I read these promises, why is my life a giant dumpster fire. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Why is my life a giant dumpster fire? A thermonuclear dumpster fire. Man, that's, like, that's one of the hardest questions that we like, wrestle with that I have to try to answer as a pastor. But here's what we can say in the context of a sermon. We can say this. One of the most important, one of the most important words in that membership question is this. Try. <laughs> Will you try to please your Lord and Savior? It doesn't say, Will you successfully please your Lord and Savior? The word comes from the background word, it comes from the word keep, keep his commandments, uh, which is a word, uh, it means to observe them uh, and to persevere in striving after obedience is what it really means. There's nowhere in the Bible that quantifies victory or quantifies like what kind of obedience you need to like pop off with in order, 
you know, for, for, uh, for this to be true of you. There's good reason for that. There's a great C.S. Lewis article about how, you know, he talks about how everybody starts at very different points. And he says that someone who's like raised in the church, who, uh, you know, has a good sense of obedience and has obeyed the Lord, you know, faithfully their whole life, may do some fabulous work of charity. And yet the prostitute who wandered into church that week, who decided to not pull a trick that night because they loved Jesus in God's eyes, that might be, and very well could be, a much bigger sacrifice. And so from the outside, we can't judge that. And it's not you judging your righteousness against someone else's. It's you and your conversation with God. It's right here, not there. You're a fruit inspector of your own fruit, not their, not their fruit. Uh, and so try is a really good in, in, in question in that. So are you trying? Do you really try? Do you really, love, do you really want to be obedient even if you're flailing at it? If you can answer yes to that question, that is evidence of salvation. Also, our own uh, confessions say that the greatest of saints will make only but a small beginning in this life. You know, sometimes we have our, the standards are so crazy high for ourselves. Third thing is is that you don't hate God, you just love your sin. And the reason you love your sin is because it is a quick and temporary solution for your emotional pain. That's why we do it. And so part of God's project in our lives is to convince us that even though we may love our sin more than we love Jesus, Jesus loves us more than he loves, we love our sin. Another thing we can say is that a pastor who I respect told me once that God deals with the church in terms of centuries and with his people in terms of decades. And so we can get hooked up looking at the picture when we need to watch the video. I just saw, I, one, of my, one of the tools I use in pastoral counseling when I, people are really concerned about this is I'll, I'll draw points on a, on a map like that you know low points and high points in spiritual life wow this was really good wow that was a disaster wow this was awesome whoa that was a train wreck and if you do that over the course of time and then you draw a line through it you can see the trajectories moving upward and i just actually saw somebody do that with the life of peter from the new testament highs lows highs lows highs lows highs lows, the trajectory is moving in a trajectory of obedience towards Jesus and in a trajectory of increasing love for Jesus. Uh, increasing love for Jesus. Yeah. The bottom line is that God is working in us and through us, and it's producing gratitude in us. And as that gratitude builds, it's a much better solution for short-term pain. And it begins to replace little by little. And so don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah, your life may look like a total dumpster fire. Maybe you have a really hard season in life right now. But overall, over the course of time, we can trust that these promises that God gives us are true. His Spirit is working in and through us. 
and he is creating in us life uh, and creating, uh, bringing his spirit through us, his power in the world. I was just talking about this whole thing to a friend of mine this week, and it reminded me of a, of a story of a, a lecture that our seminary president gave one day where he said, he said, the gospel is not information. The gospel is not uh, like a biohack that you can apply to your life to make things better. It's not information or a step-by-step program. The, bi- the gospel is a story It's a story of God's love for us, the extent to which God went to save his people. And the more we immerse ourselves in that story and the more we recognize the astonishing amount of God's love for us, that's what begins to change us. That's what changes us inside. We get... I feel like A big part of my ministry is God has called me to tell people two things, that he loves them and that they're being lied to. There's so much misinformation about who God is and what God is like. What the gospel tells us above all that cannot be denied is that God is overwhelming love, self-sacrificial love for his creation, for his people. And that is what we're called to persevere in our pursuit of understanding that love of God in the gospel more and more, and that is the fuel that changes us and allows us to obey and allows us to become channels of the Holy Spirit into the world. So, last thing, why? Why would we do this? Why are we, why are we doing this? Why is this a membership vow? Why is this so important? Well, do yourself a favor, if you are not already in some shape or form, a super anti-Christian environment, and take the time, go online, and read blog posts, articles by writers who are extremely anti-Christian, or progressive, or secular, and just and read about what regular non-Christian, secular, I'm not, you know, I'm just talking about regular regular people, educated people, and read what their opinion is of the church. What do people think about the church? What do people think about us? What is our reputation in the world? Especially the evangelical church outside of our little bubble. And sometimes I read stuff that's so shocking, just so disturbing, and I'm like, that's not true. <laughs> Uh, and, and on one hand, there's always going to be haters. The gospel, people hate the gospel, and there's always going to be a sense where people find reasons to hate the church as a way to hold off the gospel in much, way, in much the way that you make people that you hurt the bad guys so that you don't have to face up, right? And so there's always going to be haters out there, but partly uh, a lot of the reputation we have in the world is justly deserved. What are we concerned about? Are we more concerned about are we more concerned about being obedient to the commands of Christ as an act of love in and of ourselves? Or are we more concerned about making others obey the commands through political might or whatever means we may have available to us? 
Are we more concerned about serving the world as an act of love to Jesus, or are we more concerned with keeping the world at a distance lest we might be soiled by the There's all kind of church shenanigans, and, and look, I mean, I'm not, there's a lot of good, the, the, there's so much good in the church, um, and I'm not saying, and the church has always been a giant mess, but neither of those things give us the right to just settle into the mess and say, ah, it's a mess. We have a responsibility to, like, see what is, what is the mess, what is God calling us to do so that our witness in the world might might be different. Listen, this is, what Je- this is what Jesus said. We read it earlier today. We're called to be salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, and nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And yet the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What would happen if we got that more into balance? I know we're not going to get it totally right, but what if we were able to get that more into balance and we were all about being so filled with a gratitude for the gospel that we were just passionately in love with God and that passion of love for God drove us to want to be obedient to his commands. And as we became obedient to his commands, it resulted in spiritual health. And we could put down petty fighting and, and, and grasping onto the things of the world, and we developed a sense of well-being based on the promises that we have in the new creation. And then that spiritual health resulted in joyful service to the community around us. And then that service to the community resulted in relational capital that we could then use to preach the gospel to people. What would that look like? What would that look like? What would the reputation of the church be in the world? Well, in conclusion, that's where I intend as pastor to lead us as a church to lead us in that direction. So today's like your last day at the congregational meeting to like cancel that plan if you don't like it. Uh, But that's where I intend to lead us for our good and for the good of the church, the health of the church and the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, you promise us in your word that you will not be a debtor to your people. Uh, There's nothing we can do to put you in our debt because you possess all things. There's nothing we can give you. And that should tell us something, that everything that you command of us is for our blessing and is for our good. So, Lord, we pray that as we think about obedience, especially in the trying areas of sin in our lives and areas of struggle, Lord, we pray that we would first recognize the grace of Jesus is upon us and we possess his righteousness Positionally, you have declared us to be righteous based on Jesus. And as we, that sinks into our minds more and more, what that means and what that says about you, I pray that it would cause us to love you more. And in the course of that love growing, we would want to be closer to you. And then that would become 
an upward smile of love, greater love for you, greater obedience, greater love, greater obedience, greater love, so that we might be vessels of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us into the world. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church, as Res Pres, as a church. Help us to love you so much uh, that good works and service and love just naturally poured out of us because that's the kind of people you are creating us to be through the power of your spirit for the sake of Jesus and his name in the world and also for our spiritual health and blessing, Lord. Let it be so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.